Hello and welcome back to Cross Eternal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the first chapter of Blood of Elves. Uh, I elected to just go ahead and do the main saga books uh, chapter by chapter. The big one that's going to be a uh, pain in the ass to figure out how to do that is Season of Storms because its chapters are, are sectioned out differently than the others. Um, so, uh, but I will deal with that when I deal with that, because that's a long ways away. we got several books to go through until then. So, Blood of Elves Chapter 1 has several purposes, uh, you know, s several things it needs to accomplish. First of all, it is the first book in the mainline saga. All the other ones were short stories, uh, short story collections. And at the time, you know, uh... A lot of these short stories were published in a magazine, the Fantastica magazine, in an era before the internet, really. Um, and these these books start coming out around the time that those start getting collected um, and put into their own books. Uh, but there is a chance, a very high chance, in fact, that um, this is the first Witcher thing someone is picking up. So it has to recap certain major events it has to introduce us to a large majority of the main characters it has to really get us going into the main plot while also not boring uh people who have uh read everything up until then um and this is this is only exacerbated by the issue of in the english translations anyway a lot of stores will put blood of elves as book one because technically it is book one of the pentology of the saga but it is technically also the third book because the first two books are short stories and not considered quote-unquote actual full-length novels but they are important to everything going forward so you you the first book should be last wish but some retailers especially amazon i know is guilty of this of listing blood of elves as book one when it really is book three um and so people will jump in really confused and so this chapter has to do a lot of legwork to really recap us get us up in the gear um and not confuse people as much as possible while also not boring those who already know um we open with series nightmare and series nightmares of the slaughter of sintra um and i think one of the strongest aspects of this series is how a lot of the major events are done um through telling uh from someone who's misremembered or something or for someone who is reliving the events in some sort of dream or whatnot there's things like that throughout this series and that's part of the overall theme of real facts versus true facts of revisionist history of the way our own perceptions and biases color um those events and how memory can change uh and be altered um, and so we see the slaughter of Sintra through a nightmare through Siri, who was already a little girl, very afraid of what was going on. And as such, um, you know, there's this sense of hell is breaking loose. And, and there is, it was hell, you know, everybody calls it the slaughter of the massacre. So it's like, it is a major, major event. But like the Black Knight that, that comes and, and sort of leans over her and is this all foreboding presence, you know. Um, the show has went ahead and given us his name already, uh, hasn't gone through his full arc of where he's supposed to be in the books yet, uh, but, so I won't spoil that, but his name is Kahir, and I know who Kahir is, and I know, uh, the big stuff about him, and, and how, um, in a way, 
yes, he is part of this imperialist army, and yes, he was coming to capture her, and yes, there was a lot of bloodshed and misery going on around but he um, never uh, really intended to harm her in any way, but she is interpreting it that way, because how else could she? And I don't think it's a spoiler to say he didn't intend to harm her because the even though the show hasn't gone fully into it they at least have that scene where the where doppler series talking to him and he says i you know uh, i never intend you harm a blah 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 there is this sense with kahir um that there is more to him and i i, I think that's important that we've seen him through the eyes of a young girl who is very, very fucking scared, who just watched her entire family get murdered and her entire town lit on fire, that everything about him is foreboding and scary and very traditional fantasy villain, the Black Knight with the Bird of Prey feather, you know? Um, and, you know, there will be things coming down the line that I'm not going to spoil too much in which we will learn more about this and that villain slides away to become something more still same person different interpretations different perspectives of who that is and what he was doing um i'm not gonna go too much into that right now and i'm not gonna put a spoiler section because i think it is more apropos to a particular scene in time of contempt um but you know that uh there's just this sense that we're not getting the whole story from her perspective. And I think that is very important to note. Now, the dandelion at the seed of friendship scene, that serves multiple purposes. Um, it is the recap scene, effectively. It is the big old, uh, here's, uh, you know, here here's... Uh, what happened? Who here's who Geralt is? Here's who Ciri is? Who's here's who Yennefer is? Here's who Dandelion is? This is the adventures they went on. Stuff, destiny, blah blah blah, boom boom boom, uh, war, all that. Yes, it's a recap. Um, but in here, you know, time has passed. Over a year has passed since uh the big war, the first Novgardian war. Um. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's been this sense of the time is changing. Times are ending, something is ending, something's beginning. And we need to get the status quo, even for readers who are very familiar with the short stories, we need to know the status quo. And, uh, and uh, it, it's a very clever way to uh, also pop up that theme of perspectives. You know, everybody in see the Friendship, despite what the, the what that tree is supposed to symbolize, which is tolerance and, uh, and and friendship and unity, everybody there is being is segregating themselves among racial and political lines, um, and the only ones who don't care are the children because they haven't been taught hatred, they haven't been taught, um, you know, racism yet, and so for them. You know, it's just a matter of having fun, seed of friendship. But for everyone else, there's this sense of, you know, the, the world has changed, but we refuse to change with it. And everybody is recounting the events of Sodden Hill or the First North Guardian or the Slaughter of Sintra, uh, some of the the short stories from their own perspectives, Rayla, Skelton Skaggs, etc. Um, and we, we get this general sense uh, that... Um, you know, that stories are being examined, that stories are, or ballads, are lies that tell the truth. 
And uh, some people can turn that and ignore the truth and only focus on the lie and vice versa. And that there is usually something in between. And that and its ability to both lie and tell truths is both a pro and a con. It can be used for good, like what Dandelion tries to do, or for propaganda. Uh, real facts versus true facts. Revisionist history. Um, and we're getting all that from this crowd interaction with Dandelion. Um how there's even the talk about, um, you know, that the Nymph Guardians may have been, uh, you know, come from the blood of elves and, and how there's, and, the, and there's no such thing as a pure blood anymore because there's always, you know, because of the, the centuries everybody's been around, they've procreated with each other. So, the, the, you know, everybody's got a little bit of blood of something, which kind of harkens back uh, to a point I made in my Babylon 5 commentaries, uh, you know, episodes of... Uh, there is no such a uh, thing as a pure anything. That is such a misnomer, um, a misunderstanding uh, of biology uh, that that we all adapt and grow through our genetic line and the intermingling, uh, and therefore that we all have parts of others in us, effectively. That there are there's no such thing as a pure blood anything, a pure anything. And that that's important to note later. I mean, the show already touched upon the elder blood stuff, and so is the short stories just a little, but not too much. Um, but I think I mentioned to uh, Josh about the eugenics program that was the elder blood, and I'm going to get into that later when it becomes more prevalent. Um, but there is, you know... It's important to note that the Elder Blood was a, a eugenist program that got fucked up by an elf and a human sleeping together and having offspring, and that that is one of the major themes is that we're all part of each other, we're all together, we're all unified, we just don't like to talk about it, and we like to tribalize ourselves and, and break ourselves apart and pretend like we're different when we're really all the same. Um, and, uh, you know, the, that, that scene also helps to establish, like, certain status quo stuff, you know, the, the Sodden Hill was led by Filgenforth Ragavine, uh, that this man came up as a, as a hero, um, and is going to be in a very important figure to play on later, uh, and it's very important that he is the hero of Sodden Hill at this point, because, um, he is almost idolized as the person who, uh, won the war. Uh, you know, not quite, but similarly in that uh, may play into certain things about him that we will discuss later when he is fully introduced. You know, um, they, they, they talk about uh, the Ithleen's prophecy. This chapter even opens with Ithleen's prophecy. Um, and what's lovely about this prophecy is that it can be interpreted in multiple ways, not only from us, the reader, uh, and even on rereads, you can interpret it in different ways, but also that characters within the series interpret it different ways. Um, you know, uh, it, one of the druids even takes it and makes it an environmental environmentalism message, which it kind of is, <laughs> but uh, it's also uh, influenced by his own biases and uh, and so forth and so with. Uh -huh. And everybody there has their own opinions on it. And the, the white frost or the white chill has this um, interesting thing of you think 
if is one thing, especially from the games, and especially if you are expecting a certain thing from a fantasy series, and it's going to turn around and laugh at you and be something else entirely when we get down to it. Um, I'm not going to say it outright right now. Uh, let's just say that the environmentalism message is kind of apropos. Um, and I think that is interesting. You know, it harkens back to that uh, that scene with Vera and Londo in Babylon 5. You know, a, a prophecy is only just a really good guess. Um, and that, um, you know, it's either true or it isn't. And if it isn't, it's just a metaphor. You know, you can put a, a gun to your head and pull the trigger right now, and the prophecy is only just a metaphor. Um, and, and so here we have a, 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 a prophecy that is... Uh, detailed enough so you can understand certain things, but also ambiguous enough to be interpreted in many different ways. And the interpretations of this prophecy, of Yathleen's prophecy, is very important to things going forward, because a lot of the motivations of certain people are based on this prophecy and what they think it is. Whether they're right or not is another question entirely, which we'll get into when we get into it. But, you know, it's important to note that that, that is, it's all about uh, can destiny be really pinned down? There's a lot of talk of destiny in these books, and I think I brought this up in uh, some previous short stories, especially um, something more where Calanthe just sits down and talks about um, the ridiculousness of destiny and how uh, you can fight it, but both not fight it, and how it's this independent force, and yet it's not, and it's it can be both things. It can be an ever-present force that runs throughout your life, but you can also choose to have free will. And where where is the line there? And is there such a thing as destiny always approaches you and always takes over your life, or can you shun it? Is there a way out of this? Are we all predetermined, or do we have free will? That is a very fundamental question to this entire saga, especially for Ciri's side of the, her story. Um, and so, like, that... That, that's all right there in that conversation. Now, with the Ryan's bit, um, wh what I like is that Ryan's is a small fish in a big pond, and he thinks he's hot stuff. He's not. Uh, Yennefer even uh, points out that he's not a very skilled magician, and that there was no way he could open that portal. Someone more powerful must have been helping him in some way, because, uh, yeah, he he's he's sadistic he's also um as we will find out later i don't think it is a spoiler to say that he um you know he serves some time um in an intelligence agency um as such the way he tortures dandelion it isn't about threats of death and in traditional uh you know uh, traditional torture it's more about um, taking away the thing he cares about most. So if his arms or his hands are broken, well, he can't play his instruments anymore. The the bard without, uh, you know, uh, musical instruments without his instrument, it's no bard at all. Uh, and so it's about uh, attacking him, you know, at the heart of it. Um, I talked about this in the previous torture, the Babylon 5, of establishing a narrative. Um, and, and making sure that that narrative is tied directly to your torturee's heart and what uh, what defines them so that you can break them down. Um, and, um, of course, Yennefer gets her big uh, superhero entrance, uh, which is glorious to read. Um, it's just a lot of fun just to watch her just 
kick the living shit out of these people uh, and severely burn Ryant with that lightning bolt, which uh, his burn and sort of his... Uh, uh, his anger at that will come back uh, many, many times fold in future to- in future books. Um, uh, and, and what I like is that she she does it smartly, uh, but she also does it in a way to establish uh, superiority. Um, you know, uh, she's clearly more powerful than Ryan's, but he had her outnumbered, so she had to do it in a way that was both. Uh, you know, a way to protect herself, but also to establish that I am more powerful than you. Get the fuck out of here, or I will murderize you, basically. And uh, she even talks about the reason she didn't follow him and end him is because there's no way he could open that portal by himself. So she wasn't going to go into a situation she doesn't know a thing about. And her conversation with Dandelion, what I love is that um, she is you know, protective of him and cares for him. You know, we've seen them interact in previous short stories, and there's always this weird antagonism relationship, but deep down, they both care about the same person. They both care about uh, Geralt. You know, it's Dandelion's best friend and the love of her life. Um, and so there's this dichotomy there of, of almost jealousy, but also uh, antagonism and... Now, because of all the stuff that happened in the short stories with the breakup and all that jazz, that Jennifer now sees down the line in a light of, uh, you were there for him when I couldn't be. And that's very important to her, is that Geralt had company. Because, once again, as I pointed out many times, Geralt is a phony, he's a fake, he loves to pretend like he's a loner, he is not. Uh, and she sees that perfectly well. This is Jennifer, the love of his life. She sees exactly who and what he is. And she knows that she couldn't be that for him, but Dandelion was, and that's very important. She didn't want him to be sad. He didn't. She didn't want him to be lonely. She wanted him to be himself. And one of the ways to do that was to have company, company he cares about and trusts. In this case, Dandelion. I also like how we get mentions of uh, what happened to her after the war that she hasn't seen. Geralt, uh, since the war, um, and, uh, she hasn't, you know, for a while she didn't see anybody. She was blinded after the Battle of Sodden. Um, and this will come up in more detail in future chapters. Um, but one thing that I always like is the way that Yen's perspective has changed because of that. You know, her world collapsed with the war. Um, friends of hers got massacred, entire situations just blew up, you know, everything that she was living through has been off kilter, and trying to keep that in a, uh, uh, you know, that world together as much as she can, she ended up getting blinded, and what that did was basically remove her ability to, um, see what she loves, to have what she loved. She had already lost it quite literally when she broke up with Geralt uh, in Shard of Ice. And, um, and she's lost the ability to have a child. Um, so, you know, she's lost the ability to have anything she wants. And now she can't even see it. Um, and so that it's all about giving her new perspective. So now that she has her sight back, it's less about, you know, trying to claim what she believes is owed to her or claim what uh, she wants and instead get back what she already had. It makes her appreciate, 
uh, through all the pain, through all the hardship, what she did have. And that what she did have, while it wasn't everything she wanted, was enough to give her a life of happiness. Um, and that, that that is very vital, that character of that. She's gone from trying to scrape and cow in the ear, you know, kowtow and uh, sort of beg her way into whatever she needs, you know, from the cure for her infertility, uh, true love, blah, blah, blah. She realizes that she did have true love. And while she might not have a child, you know, at least she had someone to care for her and she cared for them and she fucked it up. All because of her unwillingness to show her emotions, much like Geralt was unwilling to show his emotions. You know, Shadow of Ice is a hard-hitting story exactly because of that dichotomy. Um, and so now here, she regrets all of that. And it's all about, I must give back what I had. It's not about what I, you know, what I want. It's about what I had and what that meant to me. Um, because now she sees the world in a new light. Quite literally. Um, so Geralt uh, and Ciri approach Kaer Morin, and we'll get into uh, the stuff of Kaer Morin much later, uh, next chapter in Chapter 3, I'm sure, um, when a large majority of the Kaer Morin stuff happened. But, you know, it, it's worth noting Kaer Morin is a old, dilapidated, crumbling castle. Walls barely stand, there's only a few walls left. You know, it seems broken. There are skeletons scattered all over the place. This is a place of, you know, a dying people. That the Witchers are very few now. Um, you know, there's there's Lambert, there's Eskil, there's Vesemir, there's Cohen, and then there's Geralt. You know, effectively five. Um, you know, and some of them don't even stay there half the time. Um, you know, of course, it's Vesemir's permanent home. Uh, but uh, for everyone else, sometimes they don't winter there. You know, Cohen, you know, his first time wintering here you know, is, is right now, um, and, uh, and from Geralt's comment, there's a hint that Lambert and Eskel don't always winter here, so, you know, it is a, it is a place where it's light casts more shadows now, that, uh, that, that there is, there was once a great thing here, and now it's nothing, now it's dying, this is its last breath before finally that fire will be snuffed out entirely. And Kara Morin's entire location is secret, and we'll find out why and what was going on there, um, and, and why even Dandelion, a very close friend, knows of it but doesn't know where it's located. Um, and Yennefer, you know, is really upset that she she knows where it is. She's been invited there, but she wasn't invited there this time, and that hurts her in a way. And that will come back definitely. Uh, but I really like that ending where Siri is uncomfortable. She is she's entered this decaying, decrepit, dilapidated old castle, um, in which these guys all sit around and they're uncomfortable with her. Uh, except for Geralt, and one of them, you know, Eskel, he's so scarred that he barely looks human. He he, he is human, he, you know, he's a witcher, but he's he's so disfigured that it, it scares her, and, and that's an, an interesting reflection of because of what happens later. No spoilers, but uh, just worth mentioning that there is just this sense of I went from a home with my grandmother after I'd lost my parents to seeing that burn down 
and being chased and corralled by this evil menacing knight to only be brought into this old decrepit castle with these men who I don't trust. And that all goes away the moment Geralt rests his hands on her shoulders and says she is our destiny. That that, um, that warmth in Geralt comes through and she goes, this is his family? So it's now my family too. Um, and in the, the, the bonds of family, found or otherwise, um, is very important to this series and to series arc in general. Um, and Geralt's and Yennefer and everyone else. So it's just interesting to see how, uh, you know, this, this is a dying people and yet they have more um, compassion than... Uh, those who are flourishing right now and isn't that interesting i'll see you next time for chapter two which we get to meet the uh witchers in more detail uh until then bye